Our food supplies are threatened. Our crops are vulnerable to pests and disease, and climate change may severely impact yields in the near future. To deal with the threat of famine, we can use modern breeding techniques to adapt our crops to become more resilient against extreme weather, pests and disease. When I talked with Hélène Pidon, last week I published the full conversation we had, we mainly focused on how artificially induced mutations compare to naturally occurring ones. This time we focus more on the environment, food safety and the opportunities of genetic engineering in crops. As always, the full conversation is available to patrons on www.patreon.com slash progress If you are already supporting us, thank you very much. I'm your host, Dennis Eckmeyer, and you're listening to episode 44 of Science for Societal Progress. Hi, everyone. My name is David. I'm a doctoral researcher at RWTH Aachen University. I'm working in the Institute for Plant Physiology and Phytopathology, and I'm currently uh, addressing the question how we can make soybean plants more resistant to uh, pathogenic fungi and bacterial diseases. And in doing so, I'm exploiting other plant species for their genetic resistance and then try to confer this sort of resistance to the soybean plant for more resistant varieties. Cool. So that's really just jumping into our topic today immediately because that's your, your research. So how, do, how exactly does that work? The, so you're looking for genes somewhere else and then you try to get that into soybeans? Yes, exactly. So what you um, usually do is you look in, in nature. For example, you take wild varieties of crops that we already know and use. And what, what we often see is that crops and crop wild relatives are um, more resistant to a given pathogen than our actual cultures. And this has many reasons. For example, human-made plants um, yeah, evolve in a specific direction. For example, they have bigger fruit or uh, have better yield or are maybe drought tolerant or something. But in the process of breeding, sometimes the uh, aspects of resistance and immune system relevant genes will get lost. So what we do is we take the crop wild relatives and we have a look at genes that make them more resistant and then we test them in, our, in different pipelines that we have if they might change or benefit for uh, the, the crops that we are using. And then in the end, which takes a long time, we try to express these genes in our crop plants and see if they're really in the field are more resistant or not. What technology are you using to get the gene into the plant? So a widely used technology is the so-called agrobacterium-mediated gene transfers. There is a bacterium that already exists in nature. For example, when you walk through the forest um, on a Sunday evening and you see these big bulbs on trees, on, on the trunks of the trees that look a little bit like, a, yeah, not cancer, but they, they're really swollen bits of, of tree trunks. And those are mostly agrobacteria. And agrobacterium colonizes plants without actually harming them. It triggers the plant to produce a lot more of tissue. And then the bacterium lives inside this tissue and, and nourishes from the amino acids that are produced, for example. And intelligent people about 50 years ago <laughs> exploited this technology to then add genes that they want to transfer to plants. So 
If you listened to last week's throwback episode with Hélène Pidon, you may remember that we talked about another bacterium, Bacillus thuringiensis. The so-called Bt crops are plants that received genes originally found in that bacterium. Those genes enable the Bt crops to synthesize insecticides that specifically kill certain pests. Here we talk about agrobacterium-mediated gene transfer. The agrobacterium is not the origin of the gene, it is used to deliver a gene into a plant. So you could take a gene for an insecticide from Bacillus thuringiensis, or Bt, and use agrobacterium to insert the gene into a plant. Yeah, most of the time it works quite quite well, but of, of course there's uh, a lot that can go wrong, but there's no need for for concern because this all happens in very uh, regulated and uh, safety conducted manner in our laboratories. How does that look like? What are the safety measures? So when we genetically modify a plant, speaking in terms of we are in the EU, we are in Germany, so we cannot do field experiments at this moment. We create this plant in the lab and then we have all the regulations that are in in so-called S1 safety levels. S1 is the lowest safety level for genetic laboratories. S1 labs deal with organisms that don't harm humans or the environment. S2, S3, S4 then stand for increasingly dangerous research and increasingly strict regulations. Laboratories where they research highly infectious diseases need an S4 approval, for example. Nevertheless, you of course can never exclude that what you create by combining different genes has different effects on the environment. So that's why we have all these safety issues where we put our plants really in closed containers and we work only in the lab space and clean everything afterwards. And if we want to do big experiments with plants, we have to do them in, for example, a greenhouse that is sealed and has also been tested. Everything that is inside already also stays inside. The laboratories and greenhouses are checked for compliance with the regulations annually. So you take a naturally occurring gene and you put it into a naturally existing bacteria Mm -hmm. and then you put it in there, but there are consequences that are unforeseen. I mean, isn't it all natural? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. What's natural, what's not? So this is a big discussion in the whole uh, GMO story. People always relate to nature as being something that's untouched and unchanged for millions of years, for example. Mm-hmm. But if if we have a look in nature, of course, gene transfer, even horizontal gene transfer between different kingdoms of life exists already out there. So horizontal gene transfer is when you don't get the gene from your ancestors, but from somewhere else? Right, for example. So if you want uh, vertical gene transfer, it's just the no- normal genes that are inherited by parents and that you also pass on to your progeny. But horizontal gene transfer means that two coexisting organisms swap genes or just send one gene to, to the other. For example, in bacteria, this happens all the time. What horizontal gene transfer also means is the shuttling of genes between different species, so not only bacteria to bacteria, but also different plant species, for example. A known example for this is the evolution of wheat. So wheat is actually hexaploid, which means 
It has six versions of its genome in every single cell, which makes wow. the genetic <laughs> manipulation of, of wheat quite hard yeah. to make. But it raises the question, how did this happen in nature? And what was found out is that it actually didn't happen in nature. <laughs> so hexaploid wheat is really a product of man-made evolution of plant, of dom domestication of plants. People found that different grasses are the ancestors of the wheats that we use today, the bread wheat. These were totally different species. I don't know the names right now, but it's two different grasses and they hybridized together. They were hybridized by man and then the genomes were mixed, so to say. So this is a really, really massive horizontal gene transfer that happened here. And just to make this clear, this introduction of genes from different species into wheat had nothing to do with modern genetics. It was done so long ago that we had no historical record of it. According to Wikipedia, I quote, The oldest evidence for hexaploid wheat has been confirmed through DNA analysis of wheat seeds dating to around 6400 to 6200 BCE. So it happened more than 8400 years ago. And just recently it has been shown that, for example, many, many crops that we already eat, for example, sweet potato, uh, cloves, um, walnut, uh, hops and everything like that, they contain bacterial genes that are also expressed. So these are so-called naturally occurring GMOs that we consume and there seems to be no side effects up till now. Okay, so let's go back to the question why we need so thoroughly secured laboratories. Although the researchers create nothing that couldn't emerge from nature all by itself. Uh, per definition, a GMO is an organism that wouldn't necessarily be produced by nature itself. But then I ask myself the question, what is possible in nature? Everything's possible. We see sweet potato with bacterial genes. The moment when plants evolved from algae to land plants was also made possible by borrowing genes from bacteria that made oh, wow. the plants more drought resistant. Yeah. So actually, to me, the whole GMO definition has to be renewed. It's, it's kind of funny that regulations are mostly made by people that um, make their own definitions and as per se, the status quo is that if we take a naturally occurring gene, put it in a natural, uh, naturally occurring plant, then it's uh, genetically modified and has to undergo all these expensive processes of, of regulation. Speaking of regulations to get new crops approved, in last week's throwback and in several other episodes on this podcast, we talk about CRISPR. And CRISPR is posing a real problem to regulators. A CRISPR mutation is not really different from a natural mutation. So it's just one point mutation set by this CRISPR machinery. And it could be that it evolved on the field. That, for example, by UV light that comes from the sun, a mutation is induced. And then you would have a plant that is exactly identical to the CRISPR plant. And you wouldn't even be able to distinguish them. Even with genetic methods, you couldn't see the difference. Yeah, that's the big discussion. Of course, the consumers also want to know what they are buying, but how can a, our country guarantee that this plant is really genetically modified per se or CRISPRed, or is it just a natural variety that was found in the field? Hmm. Mm. 
Okay. So was that the discussion? I remember there was a discussion about that where somebody said, well, then the test methods need to be <laughs> need to become better or something like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's good to be critical and it's good to be in a discussion, but what I discovered is or what I experienced is that most of the time people are afraid of something they don't understand and of course in this topic which is very complex you have to talk a lot <laughs> until you until you reach the point where you really uh, understand the differences especially if you're not from the field and i really get that i'm i'm open for criticism i'm uh, i really would recommend everyone to listen to the critics and not just to say you're stupid or why don't you understand that <laughs> of course it's of course it's in the nature of man not just to eat everything you put on his table of course but i think this whole debate has been running in the wrong direction and we have to just rethink the way we are doing this. This brings us to the question of food safety. Currently, we are using a lot of crops that have been produced by random mutagenesis. Changes in the genome caused by exposing plants to UV radiation or certain chemicals or even radioactivity. And what they saw was that they have a totally random mutation of these plants, so making thousands and ten thousands of mutations throughout the genome, but still some of these plants survived and have maybe even beneficial properties, mm -hmm. which up to now leads to over 3,000 varieties of vegetables and fruit that are consumed and bought and pr uh, produced every day. For example, the grapefruit, the red color of the grapefruit is made by atomic engineering, so to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, but, yeah mean... it's really crazy. Yeah. And, and, and it's so random. Yeah. <laughs> And we have a lot of these uh, fruits and vegetables around. Yeah. Uh, have they been tested on their ingredients? Whether there's something new in them that we don't actually want in there? In in Germany, I would I would hope so. We have these good pipelines, different institutions, um, federal but also institutional, and and they test all the products that are there on the market. Of course, also in animal experiments and in field experiments. But this is, of course, now with the new uh, regulations, really, really uh, hard to do, the new genetically modified organisms. But about the mutagenized plants, I can only say that the main reason why these are still uh, allowed to, to put on the field is that people say, we have been consuming them for half a, de uh, half a century now and nobody has mm -hmm. died, so they might be safe. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no real... You can, can can never be sure if, for example, uh, something some changes in the in the genome lead to uh, the plant being more harmful to our health. And you can only test right. um, the ingredients, but you never know about long-term effects. And back mm -hmm. then, people seemingly just put everything on the fields and didn't really have a look on what's happening. David already alluded to it, and we heard about it in the last episode. But just as a reminder, what the current European Union court had to say about the issue. They actually didn't really have a decision. They just said, okay, all the methods that are used to manipulate DNA are now considered genetically modified or uh, genetic engineering. Even the mutagenesis, the UV and the radioaction, uh, radioactive uh, radiation, this is all now uh, genetic engineering by law. But there is an exception for those veggies and fruit that are already there because they have, been, they are, have proved to be safe. 
but every new variety that is produced, even by the old methods, have to, has to undergo all this uh, very expensive and lengthy processes of testing. But you don't simply pull a better plant from your radioactive field. So you have a gene that is better than before, and you have a few others that you don't know what, what happened to them. They are mutated, and you don't really know why. And you have to go through a very, very long process of recrossing, we say, where you just cross the mutagenized plants with the target plant, so with the crop plant that is actually used, until you have the least rate of contamination, so to say, in your product. This whole recrossing process takes a lot of time. And finally, we get to genetic engineering. Wait, so that's not engineering yet. If you induce mutagenesis through different methods, that's not engineering yet? Yeah, it depends on your definition. But as mm. it is at the moment, when you are aware what you're changing, then it's engineering. And if you just induce mutations without really having a specific target, then it's just fast-forwarded evolution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I understand. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we have very strict regulations to get approval for new crops created through any kind of genetic modification. Except for a genetic modification that we unknowingly introduce when using methods from the pre-mutagenesis era. That's misled, because the methods that created a plant don't necessarily tell you anything about their potential harm. This is underscored by the situation where crops with massive amounts of random mutations are fine, because they didn't kill anybody in half a century. But today, even crops that were so subtly altered that they are indistinguishable from naturally occurring variants need to undergo a lot of testing to get approval. We also have strict regulations on the conditions under which we can create and test new breeds with genetic engineering. Those might be going a bit further than practical. And we as scientists, we, of course, we would love to prove and to show that our products and the, the plants that we make here uh, are safe. But how can we do really reliable experiments if we are not allowed to go into the field? <laughs> That's what I ask myself. How can we test the effects on environment if we cannot go in the field? And that's why most of the research projects that we have here and also in other institutions is collaborations with other countries, other continents. The soybeans that we, for example, make here, they are tested in Brazil, where the regulations are not so strict. So Germany still is benefiting from other people's uh, lower regulation standards. I wouldn't uh, call them really lower standards of safety or something. It's just that these people or these um, the, the, poli the policies, for example, in Brazil are like this, that the product is the, the thing that is being tested and not the process. Mm -hmm. We have a, They have a product labeling of their goods. So they can plant whatever they want into the field and then they check for effects on environment, on health, And of course, also on the economy of the farmers, does the plant have the same nutritional content or the same yield or maybe even better yield than before? For example, you would never sell a, a plant that is more resistant, but has a very shitty yield, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> if, if the yield is even 1% less than before, then it doesn't matter what nice effects you have, uh, you have created. But the European Union doesn't just benefit from the regulations abroad. There is a downside. As a result of the 
situation we have, the political situation, a lot of good ideas and a lot of good researchers go abroad. They go yeah. into institutions in the USA or in China or in South America, wherever, where they can work freely and really use their products and test their products in the field. Mm -hmm. Whereas here we have these regulations that lead to results that are nice, but not really withstand the real situation out there. David himself wants to improve soybeans, a very important staple crop that we expect to become even more important as a protein source in future. The thing is that there are some devastating diseases that are in Brazil, for example, this fungal disease called the Asian soybean rust. And um, if you have these vast fields of soybean, of course, this pathogen will spread and then be a big problem and can lead to yield losses up to 50 to 80 percent. And there is no resistant soybean that is really resistant to all the varieties of, of this fungus. So um, what we try to do is to then use genes that, that come from other plant species, as I said, for example, sunflower or uh, in my case, it's sunflower, but also model organisms that we have and express them in soybean and see if this leads to a genetic resistance. We hypothesize that the resistance will be more broad spectrum and more durable than resistances that would occur naturally. By more broad and durable, David means that the nature of the resistance is such that the pathogen will have a really hard time adapting to it. Because it comes from a totally different plant, it has a totally different mechanism of action. And so we think that these sorts of resistance might be more durable than, than others. And of course, we want to reduce, speaking again of climate change and the, the effects of humanity on the ecosystems, we want to reduce the use of pesticides and of fungicides and of insecticides that we use. And in my opinion, and I think most of the other scientists that you ask, a plant that is stronger by itself for example, by producing an insecticide in its leaf, is much more sensible than spraying the whole field or the whole ecosystem with a compound that is chemically synthesized. But if the plant produces the pesticide itself, won't it end up on our plates? Good question. That depends, of course, on what part of the plant we actually consume. And also it depends on whether this pesticide is also harmful to us and not only to insects, for example, or to fungus. That's the, that's the big discussion uh, about glyphosate, for example, because as it turns out, two different institutes in Germany tested glyphosate and it's not harmful, harmful for human health after all. <laughs> Used oh. in, yeah, that's the, the newest result. And um, If you follow the instructions by the manufacturer and use the concentration that it says, then it's okay. But if farmers, for example, have the feeling that they have to apply more of the fungicide, of course, you raise the concentration. Mm -hmm. And then, as always in nature, uh, toxic effects is always a matter of dosage. So mm -hmm. if we eat too much apples, this could also be toxic. In other words, harmful effects of the pesticides can be tested and avoided by design. Whereas by spraying a field, you apply much more of this fungicide or of, of a given substance to the ecosystem because it drips off of the leaves into the ground, goes into the water, is distributed by, by wind or whatever. And you have to apply much more in order for it to stick to the, to the leaves. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas in comparison, if the plant produced it itself only in the, for example, epidermal layer, the epidermis, so the upper cell layer of the leaves, then it's very, very low concentrated, but is at the site where it's needed. So if mm -hmm. the pathogen lands on the leaf and it gets in contact with this uh, substance, whatever it might be, then it's already uh, inhibited or um, yeah, restrained at this point. And it's very, Weakened. very little weakened, for Weakened. example. Yes, yes. So pesticide-producing plants can be safe for human consumption, and at the same time, the environment can be protected from excessive pesticide use. David compared it to naturally occurring defense mechanisms, for example in the tobacco plant, which repels insects with nicotine. Of course, in tobacco, nicotine content was the trait that we then cultivated. Not so in other plants. A lot of crops lost their natural defenses. In the cultures that we use, that we have been cultivating for thousands of years, that are now maybe that have maybe lost this kind of natural immune system, mm -hmm. this is this is not so it's not working anymore. So we have to rethink the domestication of plants, bring back the genes that made them resistant in the fir first place, and then we hope that we can, that we don't have to use so much um, spraying of chemicals. In addition, our crops are facing another problem: climate change. Changing weather conditions negatively impact the growth of our crops. But we can identify genes that could make the plants more resilient to heat waves, droughts, or flooding. The effects of climate change on the surrounding yeah, weather, environment, the conditions mm -hmm. uh, already reached Germany. So in 2018, we had a very hot summer and the farmers complained about very, very low yield and very early harvest. So they had to harvest the plants very, very early or earlier than usual because they started to mm. go into premature ripening. This is due to the fact that plants, when they have suboptimal conditions, if it's too hot or if they have little access to water, then they mm. start with an early ripening process. And this repeated itself in 2019, where especially the cereals were affected. And I see no reason why this should be different in 2020. So we in Germany, and especially the farmers in Germany, already experienced the, the results of climate change and global warming concerning agriculture. And the new technologies, for example, genetic engineering, are so valuable because they can do all these sorts of mutations that we have been using for a while mm -hmm. in very, very short time. Scientists in, in Münster in Germany have shown that within one generation of tomato, for example, they can change up to six or seven genes using CRISPR-Cas. And these genes are known out of previous studies to affect the fruit size, the number of flowers per, per branch, the height of the plant, the susceptibility to microorganisms or to, to fungi. And also they found out that by editing an additional gene, that the content of antioxidants in these tomatoes can be raised. So they are not only producing new varieties within very short time, but also contain all the beneficial properties that mm -hmm. wild tomatoes have. For example, being very, very healthy. And also being more resilient to pests and weather conditions. The traits the traditional domesticated plant had lost. So 150 years traditional breeding versus one tomato generation to create a plant 
with the same benefits, and then some. Of course, they had to be able to go back to the original wild tomato plant. Yeah, that's why biodiversity is so important. Uh, if you have a wild plant left, so to say, that is somehow related to your crop, then it's really good because you can check for that. And that's why most of or a lot of studies focus on wild plants. But to David, genetic engineering is not a silver bullet that will solve all problems in conventional agriculture. Genetic engineering is just one tool out of many tools that we have in order to fight this whole process. You said, you stated, for example, the, that we want to create resistances in our monocultures. I think monocultures are not the solution for all this because they, of course, promote a new pathogen and this, that can easily spread through a huge field and then have really a big effect. So we have to combine our findings of ecological agriculture, for example, planting different fruits uh, after each other or different crops after each other and also having these stripes of or flowers next mm -hmm. to the fields and everything like that. We have to combine these methods with the new technologies. Yet proponents of organic farming and thus many policies regulating what organic farming is oppose genetic engineering. In this context, We talked about golden rice that was engineered to contain additional beta-carotene to fight vitamin A deficiency. Its release was delayed for a very long time. The activism against genetic modification, uh, modified organisms was very, very strong. Hmm. So people were, were misinformed and there was this whole thing with Monsanto and glyphosate and uh, big, big firms doing the job while uh, exploiting the farmers. This is all true. And of course, I can totally understand that people back then had no trust at all in this technology. But this is the reason why regulations are the way they are and why this rise has taken decades to go through all these regulation and has cost millions of, of dollars to to um, allow this rise. It's the NGO's fault? <sighs> um, they're part of the problem. <laughs> huh. NGOs are a very important part of our political landscape. But of course, please don't always trust the things that they are saying hmm. because they also have um, uh, scientific experts, but you also have to double-check Are they really experts in what they are doing? And this doesn't, does not hold true for only the NGOs, but also for, for other political or non-political organizations. David is actually partaking in political activities himself. I'm actually in part of an NGO. There is this initiative, which is now an association called Progressive Agrarwinde. We're thinking about an English name, which would be something like Eco-Progressive Network. A mixture of science, young scientists, young farmers, and people that are politically interested, uh, let's say, that come together and discuss topics uh, about agriculture. And he also does science communication. It started off uh, yeah, one and a half years ago when I did my first science slam at my university. So it's something like a short and humoristic way of presenting your own work. And I got a lot of requests since then of people that are really interested in understanding what's actually going on. I think there is a big thirst of the of the public to really understand how their food is produced and what on their tables is really 
natural and, and, and maybe contaminated or dangerous or not dangerous. It's really, really an interesting time to talk about genetic engineering. I've been doing, I think, more than 30 talks, science slams, but also pub quizzes and uh, talks at conferences, talks at firms. And recently I started to go into schools because I think young people are the ones that have to deal with this in the future and they have to get informed. I, I try not to, to bias them, but I just tell them the situation that it is. Yeah. And I just have the feeling that it's it's really, really necessary and has to become an integral part of scientific research to go outside and tell people what you're actually doing. And we have been avoiding or we have been um, not doing that for a few decades, hmm. which leads to people being skeptic, of course, and being critical. Go outside, whatever your profession is, and tell everyone what you're doing, even if they don't want to listen. Of course, you have to try to find words that everyone would understand. Mm -hmm. But I think this podcast, for example, is a very good opportunity to, to learn <laughs> about things you don't know. Yeah, and as I stated before, um, there are a lot of organizations and um, gatherings of people that communicate now, which is nice, I think. I just want to point out for all the science communicators out there to do their job, which is really fantastic that so many scientists are talking outside at the moment. Just a few things. Always be transparent of what you're doing. Just also, you can admit mistakes. Uh, in science, there are mistakes happening every day. Mistakes are the basis for uh, our next hypotheses that we are producing. Listen to the critics that are there and don't just ignore them because that's the way a discussion works. And don't be too serious about yourself. <laughs> that's the thing that I tell myself every time I'm on stage. And it really helps in just uh, making this whole complex uh, topic a bit more um, or a, a bit less pretentious, a bit less governed by um, skepticism as it has been going in the last decades. And um, for Germans, I already actually yesterday received an approval for a grant or for funding for my very own podcast. Wow. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. awesome. <laughs> there's there's going to be a German podcast about plant biology okay, cool. and about doing research in our field, what it's like to be a student and a PhD student in a plant biology lab. And that will start very soon, I hope. Oh, perfect. So yeah. you are a, a colleague now. Yes, nice. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> David Spencer wants to improve our crops and fortify them against pathogens that are threatening our food supplies. To him, biotechnology, genetic modification, is crucial to maintain food security in the future. When our population size reaches its peak and climate change may render our current crops useless. But when David speaks about genetically engineering crops, he's not talking about Roundup-ready seeds from Monsanto, which are resistant to glyphosate allowing the universal use of the herbicide. Instead, he is hoping to create more resilient plants that would need much less pesticides. One reason our current crops need so many pesticides is that they have required genetic weaknesses through the traditional breeding process. One could go back to the original plant and, with the knowledge and methods of modern genetics, 
make just the right changes to turn it into a similarly productive plant as its domesticated cousin, but with all the resilience of a wild plant. Counterintuitively, these plants would actually be more natural than current domesticated crops. And you could do this in a fraction of time, as another research group demonstrated with a tomato plant. Another reason our current crops are vulnerable is conventional agriculture, specifically the use of enormous monoculture. Whole fields and plantations densely packed with the same plant. In such conditions, disease spreads easily. So David's vision of the future of agriculture marries biotechnology with organic farming practices. What do you think? Should we embrace biotechnology in agriculture? Send your answer, questions, comments and suggestions to info at scienceforprogress.eu. And if you like this episode, tell a friend. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks very much for listening.